from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Summer is officially over, school is ramping up, and spooky season is just around the corner. Time for another News Roundup episode. My name is Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Amiskwitsiwaskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papa's Chase Cree territory. The Papa's Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines you might have missed over the past month. You have probably heard about Hurricane Fiona causing devastation in Nova Scotia and other parts of Eastern Canada over the weekend. In our first headline, Sonic Patel gives us some background on Hurricane Fiona and Super Typhoon Namadol, which has battered parts of Japan. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. Last week, the Super Typhoon Namadol caused devastation on the coast of Japan. The storm touched down on the island of Kyushu on Sunday, September 18th a level 5 alert, which is the highest warning on Japan's scale, has been issued for over half a million people, while a level 4 warning was issued for a further 8.5 million people, meaning over 9 million people are being ordered to evacuate their homes. For reference, this is almost the equivalent of the entire population of British Columbia and Alberta. The typhoon will cause severe damage from the 240 km per hour winds, which is about the speed of a jetliner taking off, and the heavy flooding as the rain falls at a rate of almost half a meter of water in 24 hours. Ahead of the typhoon, heavy rain and severe winds are already affecting the millions living in Tokyo. Beyond the direct damage of wind and water, The typhoon will also cause more landslides and damage to essential infrastructure, like power lines and public transportation. The secondary effects of the storm include disruptions to businesses and families. While the typhoon makes its way to the more populated island of Honshu, it left a wake of destruction in Kyushu, the southernmost island. On September 18th, Thousands were evacuated to emergency shelters, and over 300,000 homes were left without power. The storm has already left two dead, one missing, and nearly 100 injured. Japan's meteorological agency issued a special warning, calling the storm unprecedented. 
The Super Typhoon is the fourth strongest typhoon to make landfall in Japan. A similar story is also being seen on the other side of the world, where Hurricane Fiona, a Category 1 hurricane, is causing major damage, landslides, loss of critical infrastructure like power lines and bridges, and one fatality in Puerto Rico and Guadalupe. While not quite at the same speeds of Super Typhoon Namadal, the hurricane is predicted to strengthen as it heads north towards the Dominican Republic. What's driving these major storms? Well, for one, the hurricane season may be accelerated by La Nina, an oceanic phenomenon that causes cooler temperatures across parts of the Pacific Ocean. La Nina has major impacts on global temperatures. However, there is also strong evidence that there is a climate change relationship with the stronger storms. The Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change has stated intense tropical storms will increase due to climate change and warmer sea surface temperatures. These warmer temperatures can provide more energy for storms and can hold more moisture, resulting in bigger rainfall. For every one degree of temperature increase, the atmosphere can hold over 5% more moisture. A study on the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season showed that climate change caused a 10% increase in rainfall rates during the heaviest periods of rain, which can add substantially to the amount of area flooded and the damage the flood causes. A study on Typhoon Hajibis provides further evidence of the connection between climate change and storms. In 2019, the typhoon caused billions in insured losses, and surely much more in non-insured and non-accounting costs, as well as approximately 100 casualties. The study found that of the $10 billion in insured damage, approximately 40% can be attributed to climate change. Other studies that attribute cost use a similar methodology and share similarly concerning findings. A study of Hurricane Harvey attributes 75% of the costs of the disaster to climate change, to the tune of a whopping $67 billion. A study on 2012 Superstorm Sandy also includes the increase in damage caused by higher sea levels, a climate change impact, finding $8 billion in damage attributed to climate change. The damage of Super Typhoon Namadal and Hurricane Fiona are developing stories, and there may be more information about how much damage they have caused and how they've changed from the time this piece was written on September 19th. But one thing is clear. Tragic stories of major storms and disasters are only getting more common as climate change increases the terrible destructive ability of hurricanes, tropical storms, and typhoons. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. In other storm news, devastating flooding in Pakistan started in mid-June of this year, 
and by the end of August had submerged an estimated one-third of the country, affecting 33 million people across the country. Tragically, more than 1,100 people have died as a result of the flooding, and tens of thousands of people have been injured. Geographically, Pakistan is located in an area that bears the brunt of two different types of weather events, monsoon rains and high temperature heat waves. Heat waves that began in March accelerated glacier melt in the mountainous areas, causing high river flow. These high water levels paired with intense monsoon rains, which were almost three times heavier than the country's 30-year average. The increasing severity of these two weather systems is linked to climate change. In the previous headline, Sonic Patel explained how air temperatures and moisture content can affect the severity of storms and rainfall. The other climate change-caused impact concerning Pakistan is glacial melt. According to an article by the BBC, the northern region of Pakistan is sometimes referred to as the, quote, third pole, end quote, because it contains the most glacial ice in the world outside of the Arctic and Antarctic polar regions. In the Gilgit, Baltistan, and Khaibar, Pakhtunkhwa regions, glaciers are melting quickly, creating thousands of lakes. According to the United Nations Development Program, around 33 of these lakes are at risk of bursting, which would unleash large amounts of water and debris onto the people of Pakistan. Large-scale and intense flooding has happened recently in other parts of the world as well, such as in Germany and Belgium in 2021. However, in the case of Pakistan, we see people with very small carbon footprints suffering the impacts of climate change caused by fossil fuels. In an article for BBC, Yusuf Baluk, a 17-year-old climate activist from Balochistan, said, quote, People have the right to be angry. Companies are still extracting fossil fuels from Balochistan, but people there have just lost their homes and have no food or shelter, end quote. The government of Pakistan and the United Nations are attempting to reduce the risks of future flooding, especially the sudden outburst floods caused by glacial melting, by installing early warning systems and protective infrastructure. However, climate impact scientist Fahad Saeed stated to BBC that money can only go so far and that, quote, even a rich nation would be overwhelmed by the catastrophic flooding this summer, end quote. For our next story, Sarah Chitsas gives us an update on a court case that youth in Ontario have raised against the provincial government concerning climate change. In November of 2019, seven youth in Ontario, supported by environmental law charity EcoJustice, launched a legal fight against the Ontarian government. On September 12, 2022, the case went to Ontario Superior Court. According to the CBC, this is the first time there has been a full hearing in court for a climate lawsuit aiming at changing government policy in Canada. The lawsuit, called Mather et al. v. Her Majesty and Right of Ontario, was launched in response to Premier Doug Ford's replacement of the former Liberal government's climate plan in 2018. This ended Ontario's cap-and-trade program and implemented weaker emissions targets for 2030. With the targets implemented by Doug Ford, more greenhouse gas emissions will be allowed to be emitted in the province, contributing to global climate change and associated climate and health-related impacts. According to EcoJustice and the youth, 
This change violates the charter rights to life, equality, and security of the person for Ontarians. There's been a long road to get this case to court since it was launched in November of 2019. The Government of Ontario filed a motion to strike the case in April of 2020, a motion which was countered by the youth applicants in July of the same year. The youth applicants' motion passed, meaning that the Ontarian youth would get their day in court. According to EcoJustice, this is the first time a court in Canada has recognized climate change as having the potential to violate charter rights. In March of 2021, the Ontario government tried to overturn the ruling that the case would go to court, but this request to appeal was dismissed by the Ontario Divisional Court. The youth in this case, also called the plaintiffs, are arguing that climate change will disproportionately impact young people who live through climate change and Indigenous communities who are experiencing climate disasters and disruption to their traditional practices. The Ontario government, on the other hand, is arguing that addressing climate change is a global responsibility and that the province has a limited ability to reduce global emissions. If the plaintiffs or the youth win this case, it could set a historic precedent for governments in Canada as they work to address the climate crisis. As this case is ongoing, we will have to wait to hear updates on the results. This has been Sarah Chitsas for Terra Informa. Thanks, Sarah. If you're just tuning in, this is Terra Informa. We are rounding up the environmental news headlines that you might have missed this past month. Next up, Hannah Skelding gives us an update on a wild boar bounty program that was put in place in Alberta in an attempt to manage the invasive species. Hello listeners, this is Hannah Skelding reporting on Alberta's failed attempts at controlling invasive wild boars in the province. Why are we talking about wild boars? Well, wild boars, also known as super pigs, are elusive animals that pose a threat to both rural and urban habitats. The terms wild boar and super pigs refer to Eurasian wild boar as well as hybrids of domestic pigs and Eurasian wild boars. These super pigs can weigh up to 150 kilograms and can travel more than 40 kilometers in a day. They are able to survive in almost any climate, including cold winters, as they are protected from the cold by a woolly undercoat. They are among the most prolific invasive species in North America. Wild boars were introduced to Alberta in the 1980s and 90s in an effort to diversify agriculture. Unfortunately, since then, many have escaped their enclosures and thrived as a feral species. Wild boars cause significant damage to crops, pastures, properties, and the environment. They usually live in the forest, emerge to devour crops, contaminate water sources by wallowing in wetlands, and harassing livestock. They predate on livestock such as goats and newborn cattle. To date, there are no Canadian estimates of damages from wild boars. But in the United States, wild boars contribute to approximately $1.5 billion of agricultural damages each year. A significant concern related to super pigs is the potential for disease spread from wild boars to Alberta's livestock industry. Wild boars pose a serious threat to the domestic hog and beef industry due to the potential for disease transmission to hogs and cattle. 
Wild boar are known to host 89 different diseases that can be transmitted to livestock, humans, and wildlife. One example is the foot and mouth disease. An outbreak of foot and mouth disease could trigger a complete and immediate shutdown of all Alberta pork and beef exports, and it would cost $65 billion nationwide. Recently, there has been a rising concern about the threat that wild boars pose in urban spaces. It is likely that Edmonton will be among the first Canadian cities to contend with urban wild boars. Wild boars are expanding their range and can soon move from the bush into Alberta cities. In May of this year, the town of Lamont, Alberta, released a statement claiming that there were sightings of wild boar within town limits. The statement explained what to do if you saw a wild boar and how to report a sighting. Safety measures such as keeping dogs on leashes and moving slowly and calmly away from the animal were included in the statement from Lamont, Alberta. The province confirms reports of property damage in the area from the wild boars. In attempts to control wild boar populations, the province of Alberta created a new bounty program that rewards hunters and trappers for killing wild boars. This program was launched on April 1, 2022, and will run until March 31, 2023. Hunters and trappers are paid $75 per pair of wild boar ears that they bring in. The program is said to help government officials better track and eradicate the feral swine. However, this program has fallen short in many ways. To begin, wild boars are very intelligent and adaptive mammals. Hunting will cause wild boars to disperse on the landscape and change their patterns of behavior. The animals will learn how to avoid threats and outwit hunters. They will likely become nocturnal and more elusive. As a result, hunting is an ineffective management tool for wild boars and will likely make the problem worse. Sport hunting has unfortunately played a major role in increasing the populations of wild boar and expanding the region that they occupy. Trapping is a more effective way to exterminate wild boar, but it should be coordinated as an effort that captures and kills an entire group of wild boar. A group of wild boar is known as a sounder. Individual efforts such as self-made traps and shooting at a group of wild boar will make the problem worse. Another issue with the bounty placed on wild boars in the province is that the government will not release information to the whereabouts of wild boars to hunters. The government of Alberta does not give out locations for hunting wild boar due to privacy issues. The lack of information given to hunters and trappers has made the hunt for wild boar very challenging. The bounty program that was toted as a remedy to Alberta's wild boar problem has resulted in zero kills since the program began. The program will remain in place until March 31, 2023, but may do more harm than good if people begin to claim kills. As the province continues to grapple with the threat that super pigs pose on livestock, ecosystem health, and threats on urban spaces, there needs to be a better system implemented to monitor and control wild boar populations. Thanks, Hannah. Now, let's hear from Jacinta Royangeza about avian flu concerns and its impact on turkey prices. Retail prices for turkey are expected to rise ahead of this year's Thanksgiving. 
and record-breaking inflation isn't the only cause. Back in December 2021, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency reported North America's first outbreak of Eurasian strain avian influenza in an unnamed exhibition farm in Newfoundland and Labrador. This might not sound like much, and ordinarily you'd be right. Avian influenza, or bird flu as it's most commonly known, refers to a range of zootonic influenza viruses which occur naturally in wild aquatic birds like geese, swans, or gulls. Avian influenza generally does not present health concerns to the public, but the form currently spreading in Canada, as well as the United States and Europe, is a highly pathogenic avian influenza subtype known as H5N1. H5N1 can cause severe illness in infected birds as it has the ability to impact multiple organs. As a result, the mortality rate is high. This is especially true for commercial and backyard poultry flocks. Wild aquatic birds are typically the hosts for avian influenza viruses. Domesticated birds like chicken or turkey can be infected through wild aquatic birds or most commonly through direct contact with surfaces contaminated by their fecal matter, nasal secretions, or saliva. The highly concentrated nature of poultry production facilities helps contribute to a rapid spread of avian influenza and a significant number of deaths, either due to the virus itself, with its near 100% mortality rate amongst poultry, or depopulation methods adopted to stop the spread. As of September 21st, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has estimated that just over 2.7 million birds have been impacted by the H5N1 subtype in 2022, with Alberta alone accounting for 1.2 million of these birds. This is twice as much as Ontario, which reported 650,000 birds affected. In the U.S., the problem is much worse. According to Forbes magazine, the flu has killed 44 million birds in 2020, including 7.4 million turkeys, which is a little over 3% of annual turkey production in the United States. One of the U.S.'s largest commercial turkey processors, Hormo Foods, expects the avian flu to limit the company's turkey supply by as much as 30% compared to the previous year. And with limited supply comes increased prices. Last Thanksgiving, the average price for a 16-pound turkey in the United States was $24, or 24% higher than 2020 turkey prices. This year's figure has yet to be released, but a 16-pound turkey now costs nearly $30 fresh, or $26.25 frozen, according to U.S. Department of Agriculture. But the cost for consumers is even higher, as grocery store prices need to include packaging, shipping, and labor costs. The good news, though? Farmers across the country have plenty of turkey, with most of their supplies already in warehouses. Consumers will just have to flock to stores early for the best prices and get creative in their search for the perfect bird. For Terra Informa, this is Jacinta Royangeza. Thanks, Jacinta. Next, Lizzie Barron describes some very interesting linkages that a study in British Columbia found between Indigenous language groups and grizzly bear genetics. Science Magazine reported in their news section a story so linguistically interesting I just can't bear it. This study initially began in 2011 in an effort by a bear working group, as Science Magazine calls it, comprised of scientists and members from regional First Nations groups such as the Newhawk, Halithok, Kitasu, Hi-Hi's, Gidgat, and Wikanoo Nations. 
Originally, this bear working group was investigating why grizzly bears in British Columbia were moving from the mainland to islands, as well as looking into the genetics of the mainland grizzly bears and the island grizzly bears to see any similarities at the gene level. Fur was collected from all these bear types over an 11 year period. Using these fur samples, the group analyzed parts of the bear genome that are particularly susceptible to change as species go through changes like in their environment. When conducting the analysis, the different bears' distribution throughout the region matched the region's map of indigenous language families. Science Magazine explains that, quote, grizzly bears living within a language family's boundaries were much more genetically similar to one another than to bears living outside them, end quote. One of the study's co-authors, Jen Walkis, a member of the Wikinu Nation, mentioned that this finding is aligned with her understanding, both as a scientist and as aligned with her experience growing up in Rivers Inlet, where she saw that bears and people have similar space and food needs. For example, she mentioned that it tracks that people and bears would both want to be living close to areas with abundant salmon supply. Consequently, she encourages Canada to manage resources with consideration for both people and bears. This story demonstrates a really interesting phenom about where BC's bears live and coexist with people, as well as the importance of valuing Indigenous epistemologies and the experiences of Indigenous people and communities in scientific pursuit. Thanks, Lizzie. For our final headline, here's Tiana Barber-Cross to tell us about a very good dog who was helping with the management of an invasive carp species. Invasive species pose threats to a variety of ecosystems worldwide. As a result, scientists are continuously trying to find ways to detect the presence of invasive species in at-risk ecosystems, especially in ecosystems like freshwater ponds, lakes, and streams, where detection can be difficult. For example, researchers out of New Zealand and Australia have successfully used dogs to detect the presence of invasive carp from freshwater samples and compared the dog's detection rates with environmental DNA tests. Carp species are native to Central Asia and are considered ecosystem engineers, meaning that they can modify or create certain types of ecosystems just by being there. Carp can do this because they are benthic feeders, meaning they feed on the bottom sediments, which uproots aquatic plants and redistributes nutrient-filled sediment into the surrounding water. These feeding behavior can decrease water quality at high population densities, pushing native species out as their food sources are depleted and their habitat is no longer suitable. Environmental DNA, also called eDNA, is a sensitive non-invasive method used to detect and monitor species presence in aquatic systems. It is generally considered to be more time and cost effective than the traditional fish detection techniques of netting or electrofishing. But many factors can influence the amount of detectable DNA in a sample, including but not limited to salinity, temperature, pH, and microorganisms. DNA testing can also be challenging, and it can run into problems that make the required reactions not happen, sometimes making the testing fail. Given these limitations, Collins and colleagues thought canine detection might be the way to go. Dogs, with their fantastic sense of smell, have been used in many industries to detect substances, plants, and animals. In this study, a dog named Ruby was trained to sniff out invasive carp in samples with about the same accuracy as eDNA tests. If there are even two to four carp per hectare, Ruby could alert the researchers to their presence, which is a much lower density than is considered harmful. Thus, Ruby would be able to tell researchers about the presence of invasive carp 
Before, they were at levels that could cause irreversible damage to the ecosystem. This means that the limitations posed by traditional and eDNA techniques could be mitigated using trained canines. Collins and colleagues conclude further that scent detection dogs not only help reduce these problems, but could also facilitate more regular monitoring of lakes once the dogs are trained, as they would then be more time, cost, and labor efficient. I think all of us can agree that Ruby is a very good dog, did a very good job, and deserves all the treats in the world for helping detect invasive species and lead the way for other dogs to do the same. Thanks, Tiana. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.